There are two readings, uh, one is from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 14, that can be found on page 68, and from Luke chapter 22, verses 7 to 12, on page 1057. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Now from Luke 22, 7-12. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, 
Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And as Philip said, we're doing a mini-series today looking at uh, some of the pictures in the Old Testament, the incidents in the Old Testament that point towards uh, the cross uh, of Jesus where Jesus died. Uh, And this morning it's the Passover. So if you're able to have uh, page 68 open, that would be really helpful. We're not going to look at every detail in the Passover incident. Uh, It's a very long passage Uh, But we are just going to look at the themes that connect the Passover with uh, the cross, uh, as our reading in Luke also pointed out. So let's pray, shall we, before we start. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus and we pray that as we look at the Passover this morning, we'll appreciate more deeply uh, the wonder of what you achieved for us. Amen. Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder, treason should ever be forgot. Guy Fawkes, Guy Fawkes, it was his intent to blow up the king and parliament Three score barrels of powder below, poor old England to overthrow. By God's providence, he was catched with a dark lantern and burning match. Well, in 1604, uh, the new king, James, got together a group of scholars to plan the definitive English Bible translation. We now call it the King James Bible. It was and has been the most significant English Bible in history. Uh, of great importance. Uh, It would be the key translation that lasted, backed by none other than royal authority itself. But some were not happy about uh, these developments. Uh, Guy Fawkes and his men wished to destroy uh, biblical Christianity in England and turn the clock back to the days uh, when God's word was not available in our tongue. But they were foiled in a night of great drama and the young modern nation of England would be free to practice biblical Christianity. An event that the little rhyme urges us we should never, ever forget. And so that's what we still do uh, every year in November. But tonight's passage is about another national rescue, another national celebration on a much greater scale, a much more important one that took place on a night of even greater drama the Passover, the ancient rescue event of the nation of Israel, which set them free to serve God. An event which, even three and a half thousand years later, uh, Jews still celebrate, uh, and we still mark as well. But we'll also find tonight, uh, today, uh, that it has great relevance uh, for us Christians, because it's a picture of what happened in the greatest rescue event of all, that done by Jesus on the cross. As our second reading uh, made clear, we were uh, due to have a little bit more than that read, uh, but it's okay, we're going to spend most of our time uh, in Exodus, and I'll make a quote from Luke as we go uh, along. The Passover is one of a number of Old Testament rescues that point forward to the cross. So tonight we're going to look at the, uh, the serpent being raised uh, up in the desert, 
uh, and how that was a picture that John's Gospel uh, uses. And like with Guy Fawkes Night, we have got something to remember and never forget. And so that's our aim uh, today, that we go away remembering, remembering what the Passover tells us uh, about the cross. Let us never, never forget these very important and precious things. Well, I've got three things that I think the Passover helps us uh, to understand about the cross. Uh, Here they are. The problem was God's judgment. The solution was a substitute to take the judgment for us. And the result was a great rescue never to be forgotten. So first, have a look at the problem, God's judgment. In the chapters running up to this uh, in Exodus, uh, you get described a big clash of the kings between Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and the Lord God, the king of Israel. There were ten rounds to that bruising encounter. Ten plagues uh, which are described as mighty acts of God's judgment. And here is the last and most terrible one uh, that we're looking at. In chapter 11, verses 4 and following, it says this. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says about midnight. I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. A terrible night of judgment is coming, the final plague. Look down at verse 12 of chapter 12. We get some little explanation of what God says he's doing. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. You see, in Egypt, the Pharaoh was viewed as divine. He was worshipped as if he was a god. And he's been so arrogant as to step into the ring with the Lord God Almighty. He was arrogant enough to try and kill Israel's firstborn sons as well. But there's only one true God, and judgment is coming on him and all of Egypt who worship him and all their other false gods. God is going to bring his wrath against Egypt. They've had time to repent. They've had smaller uh, plagues. Uh, They've been building up and up, Uh, but Pharaoh has set his heart against the Lord. But it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, Israel uh, is also somehow involved uh, in this judgment. They have to do something to avoid the judgment. And that's because the Israelites actually also deserve God's judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a number of instances where a sacrifice has to be made for sin, and God's people are not exempt Uh, from that. And we get enough indications from the Old Testament, from the book of Joshua, for example, uh, that when the Israelites reach Canaan, it is pointed out that they have in the past worshipped pagan gods. They were not wholly loyal to the Lord. So Israel itself deserves God's judgment. That's partly what the the need for this uh, sacrifice that they do uh, teaches us. This is the problem Israel faced And the Bible teaches that all of us face it today, God's judgment. God's judgment in the Passover is just a little picture 
of the final judgment God will bring on all people at the end of time. The Lord reveals himself to us in the book of Exodus as a mighty judge, the holy God, as we've been singing of. But in Exodus, it's just a partial judgment. Egypt doesn't actually get what it deserves. It deserves complete destruction. But that's not going to happen yet. God withholds his hand. And what we get here is just a little foretaste. It's a warning for us to remind us of the future judgment. So if Israel had a problem back then, we do now. Because like them, we are not wholly loyal to God. We worship other things in our lives as if they are God. Maybe the little gods of our career uh, or our family uh, or our house uh, or a significant other relationship. Other things take the place uh, of number one worship in our lives that should only be given to God. And so if God's going to be just with all of us, it will be bad news. God's wrath will be seen. Uh, and it will be worse than the judgments that fell on Egypt. So that's the problem, the problem of God's judgment. Can anything be done about it? Well, the solution, a substitute to take the judgment for us. God himself provides the solution. He provides a way out for Israel, a substitute who will take the judgment instead of them, who will be be killed instead of their firstborn sons. Look again at the beginning of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each of his household. Each family is to have a lamb with them for four days. If the family is too small, they're to join with other families in verse 4. They're to have this lamb with them, to identify with it. It becomes, if you like, part of the family, one of them. It's to be an animal in its prime, a one-year-old male without any defect. And at twilight, on the 14th day of the month, it is to be slaughtered. And the blood is to be daubed on the door frames of the house. And then they're to eat all of the meat roasted. All of it has got to go uh, and anything left must be burnt up. And they're to eat in haste, dressed ready to escape on a long journey. And when the judgment comes, the Lord will go through Egypt and the blood on the door frames will be a sign. When God sees the blood, he will not kill anyone in that house. Well, what is it about? It's clear, isn't it? It's a substitute. The lamb dies instead of the firstborn son. When God sees the blood, when the angel of death sees the blood, he knows that a death has already occurred in that house. Judgment has already fallen, if you like, and so he passes over and moves on. Just imagine being in one of those houses that night. If you were a firstborn son, like I am, uh, would you be able to sleep? Imagine uh, a young boy, you can't sleep, and he comes downstairs and says, Dad, have you put the the blood on the door yet? It's all right, son, don't worry, I'm going to do it. You go off to bed. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Ten minutes later, Dad, have you put the blood on yet? Don't worry, I'm going to do it. And a bit later, Dad, it's all right. It's there. Come, have a look. It's there. And so finally, young Jacob, or whatever he was called, can go off to sleep. God saves through a substitute taking uh, the wrath. And this is the way God always saves his people throughout the entire Bible. It's interesting that uh, 
in Genesis 22, we looked at a few weeks ago on Sunday night, there is a lamb provided for a man, Isaac. Uh, Here, a lamb for a family. Uh, Then at the Day of Atonement, a lamb for the nation. Uh, And then finally, when you come to Jesus himself, a lamb for the world. God saves through providing uh, a substitute. He is a judge who is just, uh, and he must judge, and we deserve his wrath. But he is also loving, and he doesn't want to destroy sinful humanity. Uh, And he promised, he promised Abraham to rescue a people, to be his people, uh, and that promise is fulfilled in many ways throughout history. He is just, and he's loving, And so a substitute is needed for us to be saved from the judgment. And that's what the Passover uh, is teaching us, along with these other uh, substitutes. For God to save us from his future wrath, there needs to be a substitute. We can't save ourselves. And Luke's Gospel really helpfully shows the connection between the Passover and Jesus' death. Jesus says, doesn't he, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's Luke uh, 21, uh, verse 15. And he says, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It's a Passover meal that Jesus was eager to share with his disciples the night before his death. And as he does it, he gives the Passover new meaning. It is fulfilled in his death that is going to happen. He connects it to his death as a substitute for us. As John's Gospel puts it, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A lamb without blemish. He never sinned. He was perfect. A lamb who identified with us. He came and lived with us, was one of us for a time, so that when the time came, he was a fit substitute uh, to stand in for us. To die on the cross when the sky turned black, God's wrath was being poured out on Jesus. In fact, The sky turning black was one of those plagues, wasn't it, Uh, in Egypt as well, a sign of God's wrath uh, coming on Jesus. God saves us from his wrath through a substitute taking it for us. As the song in Christ alone put it, it was on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. But if you look back at the Exodus uh, Passover event, The Israelites weren't saved automatically, were they? They had to do something uh, to trust in the blood of the lamb. They had to put the blood on a doorframe. They had to trust in the blood. That was the way they did it. And it is the same for us today. God's judgment is coming, and it's going to fall in one of two places, either on the lamb, Jesus, or on us. And we need to have our trust firmly in Jesus. Like putting the blood on the doorframe, we need to trust in the blood shed for us in order to be safe from God's wrath to come. There's no other way. So it is worth asking the question, isn't it? You know, what is the basis of our confidence before God and entering his heaven? If, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask, you know, that question, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, what would you say? 
are your hopes on the blood shed on the cross. From the Passover, that's the only place our hope can be, isn't it? How, how hopeless it is to place our hope in the fact that we've gone to church or been kind to people or read our Bibles uh, or taught Sunday school or even been ordained. Our achievements, really, uh, cannot do anything to save us from the wrath of God. It is only the blood of Jesus. We have no other reason except the blood of Christ. And so that great hymn, Rock of Ages, puts it like this brilliantly. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, saviour, or I die. Brilliantly puts what we need to have as an attitude before God. And so thirdly then, the result is a great rescue never to be forgotten. Uh, I'll read from verse 29 of chapter 12 of Exodus. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt. But there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds and as you have said and go and bless me also. It's a terrible night, isn't it? It's hard to read it without sensing how terrible it was. The knockout punch in the big fight has occurred, and now Israel is free. Look at uh, 33. The Egyptians urge them to get out. And in 35 and 36, the Egyptians give them silver and gold and clothing. Uh, They were slaves, they were impoverished. Uh, And now it's almost like they're finally being given some wages. Well, they go. 600,000 men and their wives and children and livestock. Kept in Israel, kept in Egypt for 430 years, says verse 40, and now at last free. An amazing rescue. Saved from slavery, saved from God's wrath, free to be God's people. But if you look through uh, all of chapter 12 and also the first half of chapter 13, the whole of this incident, you'll notice an interesting thing. We're dealing with a gripping story. It's a devastating night. But the storyteller seems as if he's almost more concerned with the regulations about how Israel is to remember the event. He's writing because it's so important. It is never to be forgotten by Israel. So there's this Passover meal. Look at 12:24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. They are to remember. They are to remember they were rescued from God's wrath. Chapter 12, 14 to 20 is all about uh, the festival of unleavened bread that goes with it each year after the Passover. They're to eat unleavened bread for seven days to remind them of the way they escaped from Egypt 
didn't have time to put yeast in their bread. They just had to get out. And uh, it's a reminder for them that they were free, set free from slavery. And for us Christians too, the rescue through the cross is so important, we've got to keep remembering it. We can look back to the once and for all saving event, the most important event in history. It's no surprise, is it, that Jesus gives us, the one thing he gives us, aside from baptism, that we are to continue, the one ritual is a ritual to remember the cross. It's the one most important thing that we need to remember. Uh, It's so easy to forget, so easy to assume, uh, and yet he wants us to remember it, remember it regularly. This is a little bit cheesy. A vicar was in his study with his young son, and he said, son, can you get me that big metal key from the desk over there, please? And his young son accidentally brought him a metal cross instead. Uh, And the vicar said, thank you, son. And he thought about it and he said, yes, that is the key. That is the key. It's the key to life. It's the only way we can become a Christian. It's the only way we can be saved from God's future wrath. It's the only way to keep going uh, as a follower of Jesus. The Passover meal was the last big meal they had before leaving. And as well as rescuing them, it also nourished them for the journey. It's the same as we, when we share the Lord's Supper, we look forward uh, to Jesus coming again. We need sustaining for the journey we are on. If we forget the cross, we can be overwhelmed uh, by all the troubles of this life. The failures, when things go wrong, if we forget the cross, we might despair. But the cross reminds us that God loves us and that our biggest problem is dealt with. Whatever problems we may be facing at this time, the biggest one has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. Or in successes, we forget the cross. Uh, It's so easy for us to become proud and arrogant, to start trusting in ourselves and our achievements. But the cross reminds us uh, that actually there's nothing in our hands we have to bring uh, before God to please him and let us into heaven. So it's a warning. Never forget the cross. This is why Jesus gave us the Holy Communion. This is why he transformed the Passover into this ongoing uh, Christian ceremony. The Last Supper was actually the first supper of the new Christian community. So we don't need to remember the Passover today in the same way uh, that the Old Testament people of Israel did, but we do need to remember uh, the communion meal regularly, a vivid way of remembering. Our biggest problem is God's judgment. We're saved from it by a substitute who died in our place. And then we can receive and enjoy a great rescue. As it's put uh, in the Book of Common Prayer, in its service for Holy Communion, we are urged and encouraged to feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us who are familiar with this teaching of the cross and the Passover, I pray that we will not presume, uh, but will remember uh, and uh, rejoice in it afresh. And for any of us here 
uh, today who are not familiar or who have not yet put the blood on our doorposts. I pray for any in that position this morning, Father, that you will help them to do just that and to know this great rescue. In Jesus' name, amen.